Welcome to Brave, Bold, Brilliant. Your host, Jeanette Linfoot, talks to incredible people about their experiences and unleashing their full potential. From the boardroom tables of big international business to the dining room tables of entrepreneurial startups, embracing opportunities, overcoming challenges, taking risks, while staying true to yourself is where the magic happens. Hi, it's Jeanette here. If you're enjoying Brave, Bold, Brilliant, I'd love it if you'd subscribe, share with your friends and leave a five-star review. Let's do it. Here's the show. Well, welcome to the Brave, Bold, Brilliant podcast. I'm your host, Jeanette Linford, and I'm here today with an absolute legend of the travel industry. It's the incredible John McEwen, who has, gosh, had a, an illustrious career across Thomas Cook, TUI, Advantage Leisure Group, and now does a huge amount of non-exec director work uh, as a portfolio um, executive. So, yeah, welcome, John. I've been so excited about this. Well, thank you, Jeanette. It's uh, great to see you again and uh, and to be in the hot seat. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we'll see how hot that gets later, won't yeah. we? <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, honestly, we've um, I mean, we've kind of our paths have crossed at various times over the years in, in that we've spent in travel. But to actually be able to sit down and have a proper conversation about your career, but more than that, you as an individual and your life is such a pleasure. So thank you so much. I really do genuinely appreciate it. Um, so, yes, yeah, so we're going to get going, John. Okay. So what we'll do, if it's okay with you, why don't you take us through a little bit of your journey and then we will go from there. Okay, Jeanette. Uh, well, I'll start at the beginning. I'm from uh, Liverpool. Uh, I suppose described as working class roots. Uh, lived in the terrace house, uh, four children uh, in that three-bedroomed house. I was the eldest. Uh, and... Uh, I, I always felt a little bit different uh, around that stage because uh, most of the people I live with, these sort of neighbours and so on, uh, were quite content with their loss in Liverpool. Uh, but I always felt, I didn't know what I wanted to do, but I always felt I wanted to you know, experience something else. So I went to uh, past the 11 plus as it was then, went to grammar school, uh, the only one on my estate. So I was uh, singled out because I wore a uniform each day and had to contend with that on street corners and so on. Uh, but that was a great experience. And then I, uh, when I got to the age of 16, my, my goal was to go to university. Uh, nobody in the family had ever been to university, and I thought I'm going to be the first. Unfortunately, my dad uh, lost his eyesight around that time. Um, and so I sort of felt the need to get a job. I, I thought I can't go into sixth form and then go into university uh, when actually uh, we needed to get some income uh, into the family. Um, so um, I didn't have a clue as to what I wanted to do. No idea whatsoever. Didn't have any grandiose plans. And then the local paper, Liverpool Echo, had a, an ad in there um, and for a junior, a trainee, in one of the Thomas Cook uh, branches in Liverpool. Uh, so I applied for the job and uh, got it. Uh, and the rest is history, really. So without taking up too much of your time, I'll, I'll just take you through some aspects of that. Um, so I, I joined the, the organization at that time, very hierarchical because it was state-owned at the time. Not wow. many people know that. Um, 
Uh, it was eventually bought by Midland Bank by the time. And so it's very hierarchical, very traditional, lots of protocols in place. Uh, for example, when you joined, you were a trainee, you made the tea, stabbed the brochures, weren't allowed to talk to customers. Uh, and eventually they let you loose on the British counter in order to sell UK holidays. Wow. Um, but you couldn't sell anything other than that. Uh, and then actually after a while, very good training courses, it has to be said, with Thomas Cook in, in London. Uh, but then you were allowed to go on to the continental and overseas counter. So I did that and actually was quite adept, I, even though I say myself, in selling. So I could always relate to customers and uh, was comfortably the top seller um, in, in that particular uh, branch. And then I was uh, in my early 20s, start thinking, well, I think I can do an assistant manager job or I can do a manager job. And I applied for uh, over 100 vacancies. And in those days, you didn't get interviewed. It was a letter that you sent to what was called the staff department. Uh, you then inevitably get a short memo back saying, thank you for your application. On this occasion, you've been unsuccessful. So you never got interviewed. No and then feedback. Out of the blue, I know. And then out of the blue, I um, I got a call from the head office, which was in London, and the CEO of the time was a real sort of uh, tyrant, really, coming from middle of bank to to sort out the business because they didn't think it was performing particularly well, and they had a big operation in North America. So I had to go down and see the CEO. He asked me to write a strategy paper. Never written a strategy paper in my life at that stage. <laughs> so I fumbled around and did something, which I presented to him. And then the following week, they called me and said, we'd like you to go to America. Wow. Uh, so uh, mid-20s, and um, I'd met my wife in the same branch. Uh, so we decided to get married. We went to America, initially to Dallas. Uh, had three years there. Um, and then actually, uh, what... That's where everything changed, because when I was out there running the Texas business, you were effectively your own boss because your line management was like 2,000 miles away in New York. Uh, and you were very much left to your own devices. So all of a sudden, you're moving into an environment where you have to plan lots of you know, how you're going to grow the business, uh, how you're going to attract and retain customers, uh, managing people. Yeah. Never done before, none of those things. But it was a fabulous experience. And yeah, I made mistakes along the way, um, but I learned from them and then came back to the UK for a while. Um, and, and then uh, 18 months later, was asked by the CEO to go and do a total review of the North American business. Uh, again, because it wasn't um, performing very well. Uh, did a paper on that, and then they said, right, we want you to go out. Uh, and the choice was either um, Chicago or San Francisco. So I really influenced them into thinking that I'd be well suited to the West Coast. Uh, and, <laughs> Far and, better and weather. Then, <laughs> uh, and ended up in, um, in San Francisco running the Western USA business, which would, had, I think, about 45 locations. Wow. Uh, plus corporate travel, plus foreign exchange. And that was fabulous because it was like running your own business and, um, and you know, to the right protocols, but it was developing the people, encouraging the people, motivating the people, 
spend a lot of time on the front line with customers, particularly some of the big corporates, and then looking at how we grow the business as well. And that was a great, uh, a great experience for me. I wouldn't have got that if I'd stayed in Thomas Cook UK mm. because it was so hierarchical. I probably wouldn't have even been a branch manager uh, at, at, at that stage. And, and obviously, I got noticed, and the CEO asked me to come back then to the head office, um, which had since moved to Peterborough, which is where it was until, unfortunately, the company went bust in 2019. Um, I worked with him and Midland Bank, who were the owners at that stage, uh, became HSBC, uh, on uh, strategy papers for the board and so on. And then they asked me to join the retail business as retail director. Uh, and that was just a fabulous, um, a fabulous experience for me because we had about 250 shops. Uh, we expanded the network um, significantly to about 600 shops, uh, put a lot of segmentation in, in terms of understanding catchment areas and so on, well up, well travel, those sort of philosophies. And, uh, and then launched some new initiatives. Uh, Thomas Cook Direct was the first call centre-driven business. Mm. Um, we did fly consolidators. We had multinational corporate travel. Foreign exchange, I uh, got hold of that and took it into the banks as well as airports and ports. So it became, actually, it was the principal profit earner for Thomas Cook by some distance, mm. as you can imagine. So I did that for seven, eight years. And it was, it was just a fabulous experience because one of the things I really enjoyed, Jeunesse, is actually meeting with the people on the front line, I guess because of my roots. Yeah. I was always very comfortable. And so I made the point both there and, and subsequently when I joined Long Poly, um, of actually blocking every Friday out so I could go and visit branches. But I would always go unannounced. So I yeah. didn't want them putting on a show for me. I just wanted to wander in and... You know, and, and, and it was great because I could get first-hand feedback from the, the staff members in, in those stores. People at head office hated it because they always got calls from me on the Friday saying the marketing's not effective or this technology doesn't work, you know. So, um, but, but again, um, that was really great experience. Then I, I moved over. Sorry, this is going on a bit, but I've been through quite a bit, as you imagine, but... I then moved to the international sector, which was 54 countries, totally different environment. You're managing remotely, um, everybody different time zones, very different cultures, whether it's the difference between Africa, even within Asia, it's very different with India, Japan, uh, and so on, uh, as well as Australia, New Zealand, South America. So you have to think very carefully about the approach that you were taking. So some of the basics were still the same in terms of shaping out your plans for the business, um, engaging um, with the teams, making sure that you have all the usual disciplines that you would have. The big difference, though, was actually influencing customers or uh, partnerships because we had some joint ventures as well. So, for example, in Japan, um, if you're cultivating a relationship with Mitsubishi Bank, for example, one of the, the huge banks there uh, on the financial services side, it took me, I seem to recall, um, three years to get a deal because <laughs> you go in and it's all about building consensus. Yeah. You know, it's all about trust. 
Uh, and 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 internally, even the CEO of the company has to go internally within that institution to make sure that everybody's comfortable with the decision mm. they're arriving at. It's not at all autocratic in that sense. But once you've actually concluded a deal with these people and everything is done very politely um, and, and so on, then the contract's almost worthless in the sense the contract's there forever. Yeah. You know, it, does, it doesn't have a three-year term that... <laughs> Uh, and and so on, and and that was great. I think I was probably VA's favorite customer during that time because I, I worked out one year I did two hundred and fifty thousand miles. Pretty um, impressive, yeah. So uh, <laughs> I've got a few air miles for that, uh, fortunately. Um, and then um, I decided after about nine years, my children had been growing up. I hadn't seen a great deal of them in the, in that, which uh, you know, which was my decision. But I decided actually that I didn't really want to do that anymore. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, after 30 odd years, I decided that I want to move to Pastures New, which was when I joined what was then the enemy. So I moved from <laughs> Thomas Cook to what was then Lumpoly, then part of the Thompson Travel Group before it became TUI. Uh, and, and that was great. It was a huge business, 900 locations. Uh, mm -hmm. A uh, very significant top line turnover, and the cultures were very different. Thomas Cook, very professional, very experienced. You know, if you went into a Thomas Cook store, then you would you would see that professionalism, and so on. You went into Lumpoli at that time, totally different, because the people you were encountering at the front line of the business were very often quite young, usually mm -hmm. in their twenties. They recruited for their personalities and their ability to relate to people rather than their knowledge of the travel industry. The rationale being we can always teach them about travel. We can't mm -hmm. teach them about personality. Yeah, yeah. Good uh, and, and that always stuck with me. And it was great. They were very productive uh, and so on. Probably discounted too much. Uh <laughs> <laughs> which is why I, I I got involved with them in the first place because they needed to make more more money. But uh, but it was great, and you know the vibrancy around that organisation was absolutely tremendous. And even today, twenty years on, I'm still connected to so many of the people that I previously worked with uh, in in that, that organisation. Um, I took some of the lessons I'd learned from Thomas Cook um, about. Uh, if, if you like, leadership in terms of engaging with people throughout the organization. Uh, it wasn't my style to issue dictates. It was more about, I need to get the people on board here and, mm. and the way you do that. So again, spend a lot of time out in the branches, trying to find out how they felt about life, what we could do differently, what we could do better. Introduce foreign exchange uh, through the network, which again, transformed the football and so on. Yeah. Um, and uh, and then as things developed, then Tui uh, became the owners of uh, Lumpoli, well, the Thompson Travel Group. So they took on Thompson Holidays, as you know, Britannia, because you work there, um, and um, as well as Lumpoli. Uh, and then that's subsequently been Tui. And then I got myself in a position where I was retail director at Tui, but there was a part of me that said, well, actually, I've done a retail director role. I did that 10 years ago, 15 years ago with Thomas Cook. Mm. It seems more of the same, uh, albeit a different organization. And that's when I decided to leave and decided I'd go down the route of uh, working with private equity to look at uh, whether we could uh, pick up businesses. 
and and uh, we got quite close to some really big ones um which i can't mention but uh <laughs> but it was great experience really it stood, it had stood me in good stead since um i then joined the advantage travel partnership it is uh, today uh and which is the largest group of independent agents and that was a great experience um uh, in the sense that some great people in the organization fabulous membership base probably didn't have the structure in place that a corporation should have because it mm. was more of a, a members club uh yeah. but very positive vibes to it but a members club uh and so my tax and job really was to actually corporatize it without losing that identity yeah. Uh, which we did, and um, I, I guess the the final point on that before I and then I moved into the non-executive space, which we can talk about uh, subsequently. Um, and what, one of the things that um, that struck me uh, w- when I was there was that I've always been a great believer in leaving businesses in better shape than they were when you inherited them. Mm. So that's not just in terms of the strategy. It's really around the people. Yeah. Uh, and and identifying people that actually, once you leave, you can feel very comfortable that the business is in good hands. Uh, and I've always tried to do that throughout my career, irrespective of what the role was. And, and you know, with, with Advantage, for example, there are still people occupying senior positions in that organization today, even though I left there some seven years ago. And that's, uh, and I'm delighted that they are because, you know, people, people actually never really understand that they're capable of much more than they currently do. Mm. You know, you reach a level and people think, well, that's it. You know, I can't really do anymore, but actually most people can yeah. Just the encouragement, the guidance, maybe the skills sometimes, but you, you, that's, that's what they need. Um, and then the final role I did before I moved into non-exec was really chairman of APTA. It was the first appointed chairman of APTA, uh, which is obviously a member organization, um, quite diverse, travel agents, tour operators, cruise lines, and so on, and very often different agendas. So it was quite... Um, it was quite an interesting challenge managing the board uh, as uh, as chairman, uh, trying to get that balance. But I think my Japanese experience really helped me because I understood the value of consensus. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, I think if you can get people to agree, even if it's not 100% agreement, but actually they all feel comfortable with the decision, then then they'll back you and they'll follow you. You know, So I've taken some very good lessons, I think, out of my rather long career, which hopefully I'm starting to, you know, pass on or to some of the companies I'm involved in from a non-executive uh, position. So that took longer than you probably wanted, Jeanette, but it, uh, I couldn't shorten it anymore. Well, the no, and nor should you, John, because there's so much in here. And what I love about this, you know, I'm just sort of listening to your career and it has been an incredible rise from, you know, those very working class routes right to the top of organisations and not just small businesses, but big businesses. But what I absolutely love, because this podcast is called Brave, Bold, Brilliant and Brave being, you know, really pushing out of your comfort zone and, and sort of, I suppose, 
feeling the fear and doing it anyway, you know, and throwing yourself into new opportunities. And you did that by the bucket load at different points of your career, as have I actually. And so a lot of what you were talking about, I was thinking, oh gosh, yeah, that, you know, I could relate to it. And I, I can, I can remember sort of some of the feelings myself when I was making big decisions on career moves and what have you, but just going back to, you know, when you started off of being the eldest of four, John, and, and, you know, growing up in Liverpool, you know, in that working class background, um, do you do you think you said you knew that there was more for you out there, even at a very young age? Do you remember actually having to be brave and think, right, OK, you know, when 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 your poor father lost his sight and thinking, right, OK, now I've got to step up. I'm the sort of, you know, I've got to play the role of the elder sibling here and do my bit. Did you remember sort of thinking, God, I'm going to have to be brave here because I'm a bit scared about what that might look like? Yeah, because I had no, it's a very good question, Jeanette, and I haven't asked. I didn't think about it, obviously, because we didn't really see it happening. No. He literally woke up one morning and he, he couldn't see. Wow. Um, so it wasn't something we were planning for. You know, I did have my, uh, you know, I was set on going to university. I wanted to go to university. Mm. And academically, I was doing okay at school. So I knew I could go to I knew I could go to uh, to university, but there was something within me that said, I've got a responsibility here, even though I was 16. I've got a responsibility to, to you know, help my family um, yeah. and uh, in being the eldest, you know, and I don't think that was just me. I think that actually, I, I think it should be a responsibility, the eldest in the family, if they're capable of doing it, to actually take on uh, that responsibility, you know. So I decided, but I didn't know what I wanted to do. I didn't know where to start. I'd never mm-hmm. even thought about jobs and things. And it was only because um, I, I decided that um, I'd start looking. And actually, it happened very quickly because I left school in July and I started work for Thomas Cook as a trainee in August. Yeah, yeah. So I saw the ad literally within a week of leaving school, applied for it, did the interviews. You had to do a test, by the way, when you went in there mm. uh, with marks out of 100. So What did you score? Do you know? I think it, I think it was 91 or something like that. Ooh. So it, was, it wasn't bad. <laughs> it wasn't bad. But anyway, they took me on. So, But, but that, there was no logic behind it. It was just almost I need to get a job. And... As it happened, I fell into a job that I absolutely loved and an industry that I loved. And, Mm. you know, I'd like to say it's given me a great deal, but I also hope that I've actually contributed something back as well. Yeah, massively, massively. And, you know, you said you you obviously you were on the path of wanting to go to uni and, you know, be the first in the family to do that. Did you ever did that ever sort of niggle away at you that you weren't able to do that? And, you know, because I remember sort of, I suppose, when you're in those big corporate organizations, probably possibly not way back, but certainly, you know, I remember when I joined that, you know, the graduate scheme at Thompson, it seemed that pretty much you had to be a graduate to sort of get on in a way. And I was just wondering, interested to see whether, you know, that ever held you back in in your own mindset around feeling, oh, you know, I I, I haven't got a degree um, or if you just used it to propel you forward. No, it was, that's a very good question. In the sense, the graduate programs were held in esteem, weren't they? If you had yeah. people coming in graduates, they were usually fast-tracked through the organisations and mm. so on. 
The only time it really struck me, actually, is when I was appointed as the... It didn't affect me in uh, my early part of the career where I spent the time in America because it's very much a meritocracy in America. You know, people... There isn't a hierarchy. There is a hierarchy in business, but it's not predicated on degrees or, no. you know, status or anything else. You just get on, and if you're good enough to do the job there, you succeed. Mm. But actually, what I did find is that when I became retail director in Thomas Cook and I joined the board, there was almost like uh, a, an environment at board level, had their own private dining room, uh, had their own butler. Oh, my God. You can imagine it these days, can't uh, you, really? Three-hour lunches. Wow. <laughs> so I used to duck out of most of them with legitimate excuses, and I used to go down to the staff canteen and sit with the team down there and actually do it. But it, but it was a fact at that time with the board that everybody on that board had been to university and some of them had been to Cambridge and Oxford mm. and, you know, and ended up with incredibly good qualifications. So there is a, there is a part of you that says, do I belong here? You know, yeah. Yeah. Um, but, but fortunately, in a common sense way, I was able to put that on one side and say, well, actually, the proof of the pudding really will be, can I deliver can I, you know, um, get the business to where it needs to go to mm. um, and, and not just get the returns financially to satisfy the shareholders and so on, but it was more about the satisfaction of working there. Yeah. And, and, and if you were, I'm still in touch with huge numbers of people from Thomas Cook as well as, uh, as, well as Lon Polly, as was, and, and Tui. Um, yeah, if you go back and talk to the people in Thomas Cook, um, it was very maternal or paternal organization it 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 really was and um the the feedback and reaction that you got when thomas cook announced that they were no more in september 19 was absolutely incredible i i live in peterborough as i mentioned before the head office was in peterborough and i used to see people every day uh, that works that absolutely devastated. Mm. So I, I, I decided it, it's just a, a minor thing for me, but it, I felt it, it was about making a contribution. I, I'm trustee of Abta Lifeline, so I arranged with Lifeline that I would speak to one of my ex-colleagues from Thomas Cook to do some fundraising um, to raise money because you had situations where husbands and wives were working together in Thomas Cook, no redundancy pay, yeah. Uh, you know, wh who did they turn to? Um, and I just felt that we'd do something. So um, John Donaldson, who was my colleague, and I decided we would go out to all our previous senior contacts in Thomas Cook, as well as uh, uh, as putting it on um, uh, social media. But we went out to them and we really, I wouldn't say coerced them, but we did encourage them to make contributions yeah, uh, including previous CEOs uh, of the business who uh, were probably there when the business wasn't going as well as it could have done. So, um, but but everybody, although a lot of them wanted to treat it as being confidential, uh, made the contributions. And I think over a, a two-month spell, we raised over two hundred thousand oh, uh, pounds. And that sounds a lot of money, actually, but it didn't go very far. No. But at least what it did do is enable us to give people even things basic like supermarket vouchers and so on. Mm. And that was just a little bit of me feeling, well, I want to do something again um, 
in the total scheme of things, it's probably not a great deal, but I, I did feel I did something to to uh, contribute there. Yeah, well, I mean that 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 just really speaks volumes, John, because you know you are you are you know probably the nicest man in travel, one of the nicest men in travel, I would say. Um, you know, you've got a big heart, and I think that does come from, you know, those working class values that that have stayed with you throughout the whole of your career and the way you approach people. I loved what you said earlier. Actually, a big lesson for people listening, you know, around how you blocked your diary on a Friday because you wanted to use that time to just be on the ground with the customers, with your, with the teams that are actually facing the fr- are at front line day in, day out, because that's where you really know what's going on in a business, isn't it? You know, and a lot of people don't do that when they get to a very senior executive roles. So I think that's a great takeaway for anyone listening. You know, make sure you block, you find the time to do that stuff. Yeah, it's, um, it's for me, it's a fairly logical thing to do, apart from the fact that I enjoyed it. That was my roots as well, because I don't see how you can be a CEO and MD of company and not understand intimately what's happening at the front end of your business. Mm. You know, you can do customer surveys and all the rest of it, but go and talk to the people who are dealing with those customers every day yeah. and find out what their issues are, what their problems are. You know, I mentioned earlier about that, go in and find out the, the massive new tech development that everybody was raving about head office didn't actually work properly, you know? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. No, honestly, but but it, like you say, to you, it's obvious. To me, it's obvious, but it's, it's surprising how it isn't always actually, or people yeah. just become, they become so removed and maybe the politics take over, dealing with the shareholders, the city, all of that stuff, which is difficult. But actually, if you're, if you're, if you're removed from your customers and your front front facing teams, then, then you're in a danger zone. I think actually. And just one thing I wanted to, to pick up on, actually, John, because obviously we've gone through a very, very tough time as, a, as an industry recently. Um, it, and we were chatting before we pressed record about how the travel industry has gone through so many difficult times, Gulf War, 9-11, et cetera. And, you know, even people that are listening that are maybe not in the travel industry, the point around being a leader and having to navigate through very, very choppy waters at turbulent times when you've got possibly life and death situations that's going on as well as you know protecting the business financially so that you do survive can you just talk a little bit around the times when you've had to really dig deep as a leader to to lead through those times and how you've managed to get the best out of a very difficult situation because I think that resilience is so important for people listening I think it is, uh, Jeanette, and I, I suppose the most obvious example for me is I, I mentioned earlier about becoming the MD of Lumpoli. Mm. Uh, you know, essentially uh, nine nine hundred branches, over seven thousand staff, um, and and then nine eleven happened. I'd only been there for less than two months. I was still finding my feet in the Thompson Travel Group, um, and t- still trying to understand what made Lumpoli tick. And then we got hit by 9-11. Of course, as we all know, everything literally ground to a halt. There was yeah. no flying. There was no prospect of flying. We didn't know how long it was going to go on. And, and, and we had to take immediate action. And we had to take immediate action to uh, look at the cost base. You know, some things that were discretionary, you could afford to say, well, we're not going to do those now. There are others that were tougher to take. And, uh, and I remember getting together with the leadership team of the management team 
of Lumpoli. Uh, we saw it happening on the TV screen in my office on the day. And effectively, uh, that following morning, we got together and we mapped out. We said, we've got to develop an action plan here and it's got to be implemented within a week. Yeah. Uh, but then what we did is we engaged throughout the organization in the communication process, which was so important. We didn't just say, you know, this is happening, that's happening and so on, even though some of the decisions were going to have an impact on the front line of the business as well, as well as other departments. But we tried to explain why we were doing these things. And it was in the best interests of not just the company and the financial state and health of the company, but actually in terms of the individuals within it as well. Uh, so, um, and, and that was actually, it wasn't a pleasant experience. It's no, the first it's time I've had to do anything of that scale mm. to take millions of pounds out of the business, literally make that decision within a week yeah. uh, with the support of the team. But we did it and we were able to keep the morale up uh, and so on, even though there was very little happening in the organization, uh, I've always felt that communication is good communication is the most important aspect of leadership, mm -hmm. because if you're not communicating well, then it's incredibly difficult to take the organization with you. Yeah. Uh, and and it's it's crises like that that actually do highlight how effective you are as an uh, executive in terms of getting those messages out to people, but importantly, getting them to understand and saying, yes, we don't like it, but we understand why it's being done. Yeah, yes, absolutely spot on, John. And I, I remember we were chatting with because I was general manager for long haul of um, of Thompson. Well, two, I think we'd been branded by it as two. So in the tour operating side of the business, and yeah, I remember being it like you know in the in the duty office, almost like the nerve center of of trying to deal with all this stuff. Um, you know, and planes stuck everywhere, all over the place, and not knowing whether your customers are safe or not safe. You know, I mean, it was it was a very very tough time. And and you're right, you know to you have to dig deep, don't you? And really find that courage because you might not have all the answers, um, but you do have to make the decisions. Ultimately, you have to make the calls and those calls are difficult, um, you know, with the team, of course, but it is, it is that resilience, I think, that, that gets you through. Um, and admitting that, that this, is a, this is unprecedented, this is the first time we've had to deal with this type of situation. Um, you know, can, can, can we creatively get our heads together on, on what we need to do as well? Yeah, well, I, I guess, yeah, I, I guess a lot of the events we've had have been quite uh, dramatic, like the ash cloud in Iceland and so on, but they, they tend to have a finite term. Yeah. You know, you know, it's not going to last forever. Yeah. Uh, you'll find a way to navigate around it and so on. Uh, but obviously the pandemic over the last 18 months is the unknown. Mm. Uh, and we've seen the, uh, you know, the dreadful uh, consequences of this. And it's, it's the first that I can recall, which is basically a global, literally yeah. global. There isn't any country, uh, even, even Antarctica had a positive case. Yeah. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, but there isn't a, a country in the world that has not been affected by this. Um, and and you know, we in the UK, we, we're now into a more relaxed mode, which is great in the sense that travel is getting back. So, I wouldn't say normality, but the you know, the airports are open and we can travel, and that's great news mm -hmm. for the industry as well as for uh, commerce as well. 
uh, in, in terms of the impact there. But we're not out of the world yet. We know the infection rates are still high. Um, and the answer for me, just a personal view, is vaccination is the only way forward. Um, and, um, and, and we've got a moral obligation as well as the UK and developed countries, Europe, North America, and so on. We've got to help the rest of the world get up to those level of vaccinations because it's not just in the interest of those countries that we do that, but actually it's in the interest of our industry as well. Yeah, hundred percent, hundred percent. I mean, that's it because you know, uh, travel and tourism is ten percent of global GDP. It's massive, you yeah. know. And as we as we know, we know very well, but yeah, you're absolutely spot on, John. And now I just want to um, kind of talk about entrepreneurialism within big business because I think sometimes I, I I'm quite fascinated because I've seen both sides of the coin, as have you, and I'm quite fascinated by you know sort of the corporate world and the entrepreneur space and often people talk in terms of one is good one is bad etc and and the reality is there there's positives of both uh, so you know to try and get that entrepreneurial spirit in a big corporate it can be difficult but it can be done and obviously when you got flung over to the US at a very young age really a lot of responsibility you know in your 20s that struck struck me when you were talking well that's an that's a very entrepreneurial position to be in within the construct to the big corporate. So how has that played out for you? And how has that sort of, I suppose, honed your entrepreneurial spirit? Or was it there already from when you were a kid, do you think? Uh, I'm not sure I recognise it from when I was a kid, uh, uh, necessarily. Um, I probably got into a few scrapes when I was at school and so on. So I don't think I was entrepreneur. I didn't regard myself as being entrepreneurial. What I actually found, I think, is that Firstly, from taking the decisions I did, like going to the US and and and, and so on, uh, what I had the ability to do was to reshape businesses because I had more freedom to do it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so that was uh, very much the case in the USA, where we, we broadened the appeal of the business. We moved into different segments, uh, like corporate travel, foreign exchange, and so on. We, we, we They existed, but they weren't. They were taken seriously uh, in in that market, so we had an opportunity to grow as well as geographically. I suppose, though, that the most entrepreneurial period for me, in some respects, was when I joined Thomas Cook, because Thomas Cook um, uh, was a very staid organisation. Uh, didn't really sell third party uh, tour operators; it sold its own Thomas Cook tours. People mm. old enough will remember Thomas Cook tours. Very bespoke arrangements. Um, uh, it was very niche, actually. It was very profitable niche and so on. Uh, and I became the MD of Thomas Cook Retail at the time the world was changing, where you had major tour operators coming into play. Mass mm. market was, um, you know, uh, opening up in many respects. You had lots of tour operators out there that were providing the product outside of Thomas Cook. So we did a number of things, really. Firstly, um, we we broadened the appeal by actually taking on third-party uh, tour operators like Air Tours and so on. Mm. Uh, and actually, because we realized, I realized, that actually if we just kept the Thomas Cook Tours, we weren't going to get as many people coming over the threshold of the stores yeah. Uh, yeah. because they'd be more attracted elsewhere. 
And so so we we decided to do that, and that was the right decision, obviously, because I've always felt that in um, retail, uh, you're either into scale, therefore you've got to have the broadest appeal to people, um, and uh, or you're highly specialist. And Thomas Cook was too big to be specialist, but it mm. wasn't big enough to be, you know, uh, a broad-based uh, provider of uh, travel services, even though it had marvelous history. And uh, so we did a number of things. Um, so we did that. Uh, I then actually started to say, well, how can I make the network, the Thomas Cook network, different? And we introduced a number of things. Firstly, um, I don't know if you remember the term bucket shops and oh, the yes. airline. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, uh, what used to happen back then was that people used to buy their flights off bucket shops rather than going through bona fide agents like Thomas Cook um, because they were considered to be cheaper. So I set up uh, Airfare Warehouse ah, as, yes. as a consolidator within uh, Thomas Cook. Uh, I launched Thomas Cook Direct, which was a telephone-based uh, direct service rather than traditional retail. So it had more scope on pricing, that sort of thing. But we also did a lot of affinity stuff. So we became the travel providers to people like Middle of Bank, NatWest, mm. and so on. So they could practice it up with their premium cards and so on. Uh, as well as developing um, corporate travel. And a foreign exchange was another. I took that into the high street banks with Thomas Cook bureaus into the airports uh, and so on. So, um, so that was actually a way of using, and I, I don't know whether entrepreneurial is the right word, but using your skills to think we need to do things different. What does that look like? Mm. Uh, and then they're the sort of areas. And there was a lot going on about price wars at the time. Ironically, the major competitors of Thomas Cook were actually Lumpoly. So I could see both sides of the uh, the coin eventually because they used to pile the high selling cheap yeah. with discounts, uh, but then command more commissions off the suppliers. So it was a bit like a, a virtuous circle, you know? Yeah, uh, yeah. The reliance on generating the volume. We hated that, Thomas Cook, because we didn't like the idea of discounting, you know? Um, but we, we eventually had to engage with that, but try to make it different. And one of the things we did, um, uh, I was working with the marketing group at the time, is we decided we need to get Thomas Cook to stand out from the crowd. And we then uh, came up with, don't just book it, Thomas Cook it. Uh, and um, even though I say so myself, it's probably one of the most famous rap lines in travel. For sure, for uh, sure, without it, doubt. Uh, and it's key, uh, and it keeps coming back even you know, now. <laughs> yeah, uh, people, uh, you know, uh, CEOs and MDs of the business on later later dates and so on thought, mm. ah, that looks quite good. We should bring that back. You know, so I'm really pleased about that. But the, the idea behind it was to set us apart and saying when you book with Thomas Cook, it really is a special experience. Mm. And that was designed to differentiate us between some, uh, uh, just the basis of price. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, there's because uh, essentially, I think the key message here, you're right, having a standout strapline like that that's, that's lasted for decades. I mean, let's face it, this is decades now. It's still recognised, not just not just amongst travel industry people, but amongst customers as well. Yeah. Um, I mean, that that standout is it was incredible. Um, but I guess what I'm taking away from from the discussion now is that. 
it doesn't matter what size of organization you are in. You can always innovate. You can always change. In fact, this was a topic that we covered this morning in our clubhouse room around pivoting and change and innovation. So constant reinvention is is essential, but to to absolutely differentiate and give, give the customer a unique reason to book with you, whether you're in the travel industry, whether you're in financial services, whether you're in, you know, whatever, it doesn't matter. But you have to stand for something and you have to really, if you want to get superior results and and encourage you know loyalty, you have to offer something quite unique and special. Um, and I think that that piece around always thinking, what can I do better? What can we do differently? How can we stand out more? How can we give more is is a great ethos for anyone in business, no matter whether they're a solopreneur running their business from their you know kitchen room table or if they're you know running a multi-billion dollar turnover business and um, the principle is the same isn't it john it, well it really is and i i, I guess it's uh, it's helped me in terms of my experience throughout my career and for the last few years i've been trying to turn some of that knowledge and experience back to helping companies i'm now involved in mm. uh, but from a non-executive chairman capacity uh, were and actually it's interesting because when i left my executive career after all those years and i became non-exec chairman one of the biggest challenges I had and things I had to recognize is I wasn't running the businesses anymore. Yeah. You had, it, you had a CEO or an MD or, you know, executives in there, and your job wasn't to manage the business. Your job was to work with them, help guide them, uh, you know, um, uh, work with them on strategy, uh, work with them on opportunities, making sure that they were in the best possible shape. But that was more about influence than. Yeah. direction and and um and, and i think that's a skill that doesn't come naturally to everybody because once you've been used to telling people this is how you do it uh then it, it's actually quite difficult to get out of that sometimes but i think again i mentioned earlier my japanese experience helped me on that the asian experience i had mm. because a lot of it is about influencing people to make the right decisions and execute them well not you telling them what they should do. Yeah. You know, when you made that transition, John, because I think it's a really interesting thing, because very often when you've had a very successful career, which you have done, um, I guess, you, you know, a lot of your identity can be wrapped up in the organizations, in the roles you've done. And and of course, the reality is that who you are is not what you do necessarily. You know, you, you, you're the same person. But I think when you have had big jobs with big responsibilities and you have the, you know, the profile and the bells and the whistles and the power and the authority, um, when you make that change, that career change, it it is a big adjustment, actually. And and did you find through that process, John, that was there a part of you that struggled with that to sort of let go and to realise that actually I've had a very successful career, I've got nothing to prove to anyone anymore. <laughs> I think you know, and and actually, you know, I can add value in a different way here without having to be, you know, the leader making the decisions and, and sort of almost letting go and letting the ego go a little bit through that process. I don't know if you found there was any aspects of that which uh, which sort of resonated. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a, it's a good question. Um, I, I guess uh, throughout my career, whilst I've had to uh, make decisions and uh, occasionally dictate this is how we're going to do it, that wasn't my natural style. My natural mm. style was to work with people 
uh, and, and really influence them, uh, encourage them and so on. I still get my way very often, uh, but I do it in a way that they felt a degree of ownership. So yeah. what I've tried to do uh, is actually with the businesses I'm involved in is, is use the, I guess, the experience I've got, but also to get people to see that there may be a better way to do things or to get them to see that actually um, this is not working properly. We need to sort it out. Try and find the answers to things, you know. Yeah. Uh, and and there may be issues that are holding them back in terms of the development of their businesses. Yeah. Um, that you, you can actually work with them on. So um, I, I've not been a great believer of uh, dictatorship. Uh, in any shape or form. <laughs> <laughs> Thank God. Thank uh, the Lord. You didn't need yeah, to, though, did you? Yeah. There's another way, so, I think. Um, yeah. You know, and as I said before, there are occasions where you simply got to say, look, guys, we've got no choice. We're going to do it this way. Yeah. Um, but actually, that's it, it's not the ideal outcome um, for me personally. So it's been an easier transition. I do get frustrated sometimes because there are things that I probably do differently in those businesses, but mm. it's not my job to do it, to do it. You know, I just want to make sure they get the right outcome. Yeah. They increase the value of the business. Uh, many of them have, you know, have got, they've invested their careers in their businesses as well. Mm. Uh, and they have a loss at stake. And yes, I have an interest as well, but they have a loss at stake. And I, my, my part of my job is to get them, to be as successful as possible. Yeah. So that their business becomes more attractive. And in time, somebody might decide they want to buy that business yeah. and they can realize it, or it becomes part of a bigger entity, you know. But either way, my job is to facilitate that, mm -hmm. uh, which I have done uh, already through the period I've been doing non exec, where I've mm -hmm. helped companies move on. Uh, yeah. in terms of their size. So if you were, if someone was listening to this, John, they're thinking, I want to uh, be a better, better influencer, shall we say? Not necessarily in the social media context of influencer, but uh, just uh, in... Yeah, I don't think you'll see me on Instagram sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. You seem to be embracing the new social media platform of Clubhouse very well, so who knows? But, <laughs> but um, influencing, I suppose, in the way that you've talked about in terms of, you know, achieving results through other people, People and, and, and being able to have a positive influence on those around you. What what are some of the tips that you you would give to people? If someone said, I'm not very good at this, actually, I'm not I'm not so experienced at influencing people in the right way. What 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 are the things that you think people a good influencer has? Well, you've obviously got the skills to be able to identify with the individuals that you're working with, let's say the management team or, or maybe the directors, to get them to broaden their thinking in terms of where the opportunities actually are. So they may have a particular point of view about something. You happen to think that that's not the right way forward. So instead of telling them it's not the right way forward, it's getting them to open up to what are the other possibilities and have they considered those possibilities and getting them, you're almost leading them to a point where they, they actually arrive at the answer themselves. Yeah. Uh, but what, what you haven't done is a negative start, start point of saying that's not going to work. Mm -hmm. you know? and, and actually one of the things I, I do find, uh, still find today actually, is that you know, in some businesses, you have people that lead the businesses, um, you know, CEO, MD, whatever it may be. Uh, and actually, they they don't have the best management styles. 
Mm. And what they what they don't always appreciate is that could be holding them back because they may, you know, they may care passionately about their business, but they're not engaging in the right way um, yeah. with, with their team to get the best out of them. So again, you've got to try and work with those people. Some are more difficult than others because they just believe uh, in their way of doing things. But you have to work with them to get them to see that in order to unleash the potential in the business, you've got to unleash the potential in the team. Yeah, I love that. That's brilliant. Because no one individual succeeds by themselves. When you think about it, you think through life. Mm. You know, you're part of a team when you're a family growing up at home. Yeah. You're part of a team when you participate in school. You're part of a team when you, you know, um, when you get married or you have a partner. It's all about the team working together to get the best possible results. And, and business is no different. Mm. You're part yeah. of a team. You might be the CEO, the MD, but you're part of a team. Yeah. And I've always, the philosophy, I, a philosophy I've always lived by, John, is, you know, it doesn't matter whether you're the cleaner or you're the CEO, everyone is important. Every single person plays a part and, and everyone yeah. should be valued and respected, you know, equally, actually. And uh, I think that's something that I've always tried to, to kind of live by, really. And I think there's a phrase, isn't there? If you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, go together. And I, yeah. I think that's absolutely spot on, actually. And um, yeah, you don't want a, lo- a lonely journey because it is tough at the top. Um, it is, can be really lonely. And if you've not got your team with you, then it's a damn sight lonelier um, and tougher, I think, if you if you don't have those skills. So, no, some amazing lessons here, John. When you look back at your career, this is a, this is a tough question because you've you've done a huge amount. Can you think of your proudest moment? Oh, <laughs> rather than rather than I, there are a lot of uh, areas where I could say, well, I, I, you know, I was really proud of the achievement there. But I, I, and and it's been great. You know, I couldn't have imagined as a sixteen-year-old I would end up having the career that I've actually had. Nobody could have uh, foretold this. You know, I couldn't. I couldn't. And and almost when when I started on the journey, I didn't say when I joined Thomas Cook in Liverpool, I'm going to be managing director. For me, it was one step at a time. It was always saying, I want to be the best salesperson in that store. Yeah. And then I want to be a manager. And when I became a manager, I wanted to be a regional manager. As it happened, I skipped those because I went to America. But it was the same principles, you know. Um, and and I, I just thought it was grandiose to think I'm going to be uh, a, a managing uh, director. So I think from that point of view, it's it's really for me to understand uh, what your goals were and and basically how you can progress them. So, so I don't know whether I fully answered your question. So, Well, I guess, you know, I mean, I think it's interesting because, well, there's a couple of things in here. One, you've said, yeah, dream, dream big, but don't, you know, don't make it so unachievable that, you know, you're so far removed from the next step <laughs> is one thing. Yeah, yeah. And I guess, you know, if, you, if you're thinking about your proudest moment, really, I suppose it's the it's the approach you've you've taken, but the fact that you have gone from, you know, those very, very early days in your career right the way to the top of the organisation, but you've been true to yourself throughout, you know. And I yeah, think, I like to yeah. I like to think so. We all make mistakes along the way, but I think I think I have really. But I think the common denominator, as I mentioned before, for me, Jeunesse, is actually the people I've worked with throughout yeah. my career, what we've achieved together, 
throughout my career. And if I look back, you know, this this is this is a fantastic industry to work in. It really is. It very much is a people business, you know. With respect to people work that work in a car factory, we're not turning out widgets, you know. Um, we're actually turning out uh, dreams or necessity to travel if it's corporate travel and so on. Uh, and, and that's very much different. And therefore, the people that participate in this industry share that passion as well. Mm. Uh, and that's what I've enjoyed most. So if somebody says to me, yes, the achievements are great. You know, I can say I've done this and I've done that. And so on. I've had a marvelous career uh, all the way through. But the, the one takeaway I would have is I'll remember the people yeah. that I've worked with all the way through. Yeah, absolutely. No, I can see that. That really strongly uh, stands out, John. And um, if you were thinking about the best piece of advice you've maybe been given or not necessarily, well, the best if you can think of one, but one that sort of has stayed with you or, you know, because you'll have had loads of advice. Is there anything that sort of sticks in your mind that's been really useful for you in your career that you've received from someone else? I guess the uh, the one standout piece would actually be when I went to uh, America. So I was in my twenties. So that's right at the beginning of my career because um, when I, when I ended up in San Francisco, it was a, I mentioned earlier, it was it was a large business, and there was somebody working in the company at that time. That really, actually, uh, they they sort they sort of mentored me because they said, actually, I'm going to be there whenever you need some advice from me. Because he realized that actually I'd never run a business of this size before. I'd never run a business before, <laughs> you know. And all of a sudden, I was in, inheriting something like um, maybe 1,500 people uh, throughout the network. And I, I not had, literally, I didn't go through any management courses <laughs> to get there. So, so that particular um, individual uh, who's no longer with us, unfortunately, but uh, he he was brilliant in the sense that he he let me know that he was there whenever I needed advice. So I could always call him. He's based in New York. I could always call him and say, "Well, look, I've got this tricky situation here. What you know? What do you think?" Mm. And he would be there. So he was sort of mentor uh, for that period. But I think what that did is help me get off on the right foot in the sense that I, I did make a success of the stay in the US, which is why I ended up working with the CEO when I came back and then and then into retail. But I may not have made all of the right decisions if he hadn't been available to at least for me to bounce my ideas off him mm. uh, on that. So it, it, it wasn't a single piece of advice. It was the fact that I had access to somebody and, and maybe that's something for people to think about generally, in the sense that, you know, if you're going into something that's new, the unknown, you don't feel you've got the um, the expertise or the experience at that point, but actually you are the right person for the role, find somebody that could act as a mentor to you, you know, and it's um, it could just be on an informal basis, as I described earlier, but find somebody that you can confide in, because one of the things that is difficult sometimes is that when you're a leader of a business, it can be a lonely place. Yeah. 
Yeah, 100%. Honestly, I, you're right. Who you surround yourself with is so important, isn't it? And, you know, yeah. I think they say the you are the average of the five people you spend the most time with. And I think there's there's a lot to be said about that. But, yeah, just to have someone that's on your side that's, you know, that's got that they're, they're interested in you, but they haven't necessarily got a vested interest. And I think that's the neutrality that you get from having a good mentor or a coach or whatever, you know, but um, they, they genuinely are there to support yeah. and guide and and i've i've been really fortunate through my career i've had so many amazing bosses so many people that have like you know seen potential in me when i didn't in myself and and it sounds like you've had that as well through your career and um yeah you almost i think that's why i do a lot of what i do you know this podcast is all about helping people given you know inspiring contextual stories like we're talking about today and advice because i want to give back you know and you want to give back you want to you know bring the next generation up um in their business careers in their travel industry careers whatever it may be and um yeah i, I agree 100 percent with you john having those people in your life can can make a huge difference um so yeah fantastic so i have got one last question if i may john okay oh it's a big one it's a big one you ready <laughs> Go on, go on. <laughs> so this podcast is called Brave Bold Brilliant, as you know. Um, what does that mean to you, John? Whoa. Well, brave is actually some of the decisions that I took uh, early in my career to go into the unknown. Um, and I, I think that um, what I would take away from that is very often when you're involved in a business, you may be running it, you may own it opportunities come along and, and you have to consider those opportunities. And sometimes you're not hundred percent certain about what it might lead to, but you get the sense that it could be something. So from, so from my point of view, it's actually being brave about the decisions you take. We can't have cast iron certainty on everything we do. We're not going to get hundred percent perfection mm. uh, in the same way as when I just took the decision, I was invited, but I, I agreed to go to the USA. That could have been a disaster for me. Fortunately, it wasn't. Uh, so sometimes you have to be brave enough to take a step into the comparative unknown and recognizing it's all part of the development of yourself as well as the development of your people. Mm. Um, and, uh, and, and so, yes, don't, don't just be safety first on everything you do because safety first will not change. It'll look the same. It might even deteriorate, but it's not going to... And have you fulfilled your potential by doing everything on a safety first basis? You have to take some risks, not yeah. crazy risks, but you have to take some risks. Yeah, I 100% agree. If you don't risk anything, you risk everything sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Fantastic. Oh, John, honestly, we could chat for hours. I think we might have to do a follow up. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> See, you should say, oh, yes, I'd love to. <laughs> but you know, honestly, I like speaking to you, Jeanette. Yes. <laughs> oh, honestly, no, it's been wonderful. And um, thank you so much because I know you're a busy man and I can't wait for us to meet up in person in a few weeks' time. So it's going to be exciting. Great. Okay. I look forward to it, Jeanette. Thanks very much. Oh, thanks, John. All right. All the best. Thank you. Bye. I really hope you've enjoyed Brave, Bold, Brilliant. Don't forget to subscribe and share with all your friends. And if you've enjoyed listening, I'd love it if you'd leave me a five-star review.